Well, what I wanted to do in these next few weeks in the Psalms is kind of build on the theme that we've been talking about the last couple weeks. Psalm 20, we saw a blessing wished upon us. I think we can take that as a, a blessing for the new year. Last week in Psalm 27, David's one desire to know God. And it occurs to me that uh, those blessings are great and that desire is great, but getting there can be difficult. There are things that rise up, obstacles in our paths. And Psalm 32 um, helps us understand uh, what I think is one of those obstacles and probably the chief obstacle. And we'll get into that <coughs> as we get into the sermon. In the coming weeks, I'm going to look at Psalms uh, 35 and I think it's 37 and 44 that uh, deal with other obstacles that might interfere with our desire to pursue God and be blessed in Him. So, we'll look at Psalm 32 this morning. Let me read it for us. As always, this is the very word of the living God. Psalm 32. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So ends the reading of God's word for us this morning. As we come before it, let me once again pray for us. Our God and our Father, now as we come before your word, we ask that you would bless this part of our time of worship and that you would fulfill the promises that you have made, that your word goes out and does not return to you empty, but instead accomplishes what you purpose for it and is successful in the very things for which you send it. For us now, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the things that you would have us learn from your word, so that your word may become for us a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Father, all of this, we ask as always in the precious and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. He's his own worst enemy. She's her own worst enemy. 
a common saying that we use to talk about people that we know that seem to just make their own trouble, can't get out of their own way. They're not paying attention and trouble comes upon them. Or they deliberately ignore danger and the warnings from friends and engage in foolish behavior that leads to trouble. And when it comes, there's no one to blame but themselves. She's her own worst enemy. He's his own worst enemy. And I think there's a very powerful way in which Psalm 32 relates to that saying, specifically from the perspective of our very own sin. Two weeks ago, again, we looked at Psalm 20. God-inspired blessings for the new year. That God would keep you safe. That God would help you and support you. That you would find favor with God. That God would give you your heart's desires. That God would save you. And then last week, we looked at that fourth blessing in particular as a goal for the new year. What is your heart's desire? Well, let it be like that of David to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to to inquire or to meditate or to study intently God and the things of God and His ways. Or one way to summarize it, to worship God every day, every hour of our lives. There's a problem, though. There's things that distract us from that goal. Activities, attitudes, people that stand in the way. Sometimes they even actively oppose us as we seek to pursue God. And that can be very, very frustrating. And I want to look at those enemies, those obstacles again in the next few weeks. But I want to begin today with what I think is our worst enemy. Ourselves. And our own sin. When it comes to pursuing God, to making Him your heart's desire, (laughs) you're your own worst enemy. And so am I, my own worst enemy. Our own sin is the first, and I think in many ways toughest, barrier to overcome. And I think it's appropriate to begin here, because that's arguably where God begins with us. As a group, Judgment begins with the house of God, says Peter, in 1 Peter 4.17. But more personally, Jesus calls us in the Gospels to pull the log out of our own eye before we worry about the speck in our brother's eye. Matthew 7, for example, teaches that truth. So Psalm 32 comes before us as a cure for that problem and a help in removing the log from our own eye. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, we just looked at Psalm 32 six months ago, (laughs) and we did. Um, I had heard a a sermon on Psalm 32 at General Assembly, focusing on verse 5 and and the the amazing grace that's found in verse 5, where David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and immediately God forgives the iniquity of his sin. I confess, says David, you forgave, no delaying. Now think about that for a second, just stop and pause. It's not, I confessed my sin, and then God said, well, I'll get back to you in a few days, let me think about it. 
He's not the Wizard of Oz behind some curtain telling Dorothy and her friends to go, go away and don't bug me. It's immediate. We confess and God forgives. Immediately. Take advantage of that. We try to do that at least once a week here in our service. Six months ago, I focused on what I saw in this psalm as a model or an outline of worship. A psalm that builds to worship and parallels our order of worship in many ways. Blessed saints come into the presence of God, are confronted by His holiness, become aware of our own sin, confess to Him, are taught the things of God, pray to Him, sing to Him, and leave glad and with rejoicing in our heart. The psalm builds <coughs> excuse me, to the worship that's found in verse 11. Talked about how rich this psalm is and how many things we can see in it and how many things it can teach us. Just to review some of the, the thoughts of some of the commentators on this psalm, Matthew Henry says this is a psalm about gospel grace and gospel duty. God shows his grace to us and we respond accordingly in obedience to him. I mentioned that this was said to be St. Augustine's favorite psalm, and that as he lay dying, he asked them to write it on the wall by his bed, and is attributed to have said about this psalm that it's the beginning, that the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. Something to think about when you're laying on your deathbed. James Boyce, the pastor and and preacher on the the Bible study hour on the radio, spends most of his sermon on this psalm, most of his commentary, just focusing on the first two verses, the three ways that sin is described as transgression, as sin, as iniquity, and the three ways in which God deals with it. He forgives it, he covers it, he doesn't count it against us. That's a pretty powerful sermon right there in and of itself. But what's kind of caught my attention in the last few weeks and why I wanted to come to this psalm again in our series on the psalms, hard to leave Psalm 32 out of a series on the psalms. It's it's one of the biggies. (laughs) What come back to me and what's been in the back of my brain the last few weeks is what Calvin says about this psalm. John Calvin says that this psalm is the cure for two very common problems. First, When we deal with sin, we try to minimize it. The second is that we invent silly and ineffective ways to make up for our sin before God. To quote Calvin, because he's very direct, and I like what he says. What we do is we invent frivolous expiations to free ourselves from guilt and to purchase the favor of God. Frivolous expiations. Silly, stupid ways of turning away the wrath of God, of atoning, of making up for our sin. So to follow on from Psalm 27 that we looked at last week, if our desire, if our one heart's desire is what David said, to dwell with God, to see his beauty and to study God and to know him, then we need to know that our worst enemy in pursuing that is ourselves. And our own sin. The ways we try to minimize it, to downplay it. 
and the ways we try to uh, come up with silly ways to assuage our own guilt and to try to purchase God's favor. And that's just the essence of what I want to talk about this morning, how this psalm is a cure for those errors. We'll look at the problem and we'll look at the cure. Well, again, like Calvin says, it's a twofold problem, kind of inseparable. It's, It's hard to talk about one without the other, so we'll do that here as we go through some ideas and thoughts this morning. The first thing that Calvin brings up is that people want and tend to minimize their sin, to downplay it, to make it like it's no big deal. And what I want to suggest this morning is that people do that in three ways. The first way is to out and out deny the sin. Keith Green used to sing a song, I ain't no sinner, I got the truth within. The second way we minimize our sins is to say that they're small or inconsequential. They're really not that big of a deal. The third way that we minimize sin is we admit it and we just don't care. I don't give a you-know-what. It doesn't matter. So let's look at those. The people who deny sin. You might not think that these folks exist. Or you might think that they're atheists or agnostics. That's not really where you find people who deny sin. At least in my experience. Most often, these kinds of people are very religious people. In fact, they're oftentimes the most religious people. There are perfectionists within Christianity. Those that teach that we can become perfectly holy and perfectly obedient to God without sin in this life comes from a certain tradition of teaching in the church. And you hear that claim also oftentimes from, well, from the faith healers and the prosperity gospel teachers. We can be holy in this life. We can be without sin in this life. A remarkable claim. To me, it's astounding. Well, what does Scripture say? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. <laughs> John is very blunt. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Anybody who claims not to sin is a liar, is what John is saying. He goes on in verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. Why? Because God tells us we're sinners. And his word is not in us. We see this erroneous teaching in various forms throughout church history, It's always tied to some sort of pietism, some holiness movement. It happened in the Middle Ages, in the Reformation. It happened with the ascetics out in the desert, sitting on a pillar or in a cave, thinking that withdrawing from the world would make them holy. We see this over and over amongst oftentimes those who are the most religious. And then there's a tendency to see this in certain other religions as well. Buddhism or Hinduism that teach that we can achieve some sort of perfect harmony with the world around us or some state of perfection in our own lives. 
the frivolous expiation here, the silly making up for sin, is, is just a claim that I can make it go away. I can achieve perfection. I can get rid of it in my life. But you can't do that. It's frivolous because you can't deny sin. It's a reality of our fallen condition. It won't be completely taken away until Jesus himself comes back and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Until then, we've got the reality of Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you can't say that I don't sin. That doesn't work. But the second way that's very tempting is to say, well, sin is not that big a deal. They're not really consequential. Look, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody goofs up from time to time. Things go wrong, but it's not that big a deal. And it's not that big a deal because really I'm a good person. At heart, I'm a good and everybody's a good person. Everybody's basically good, right? We hear that frequently in our culture today. Everybody's basically good. Sin's just a distraction then. A momentary error. A goof up, a mistake. Remember that good in everybody and just try harder next time. Here's some tips, here's some helpful hints to to be a better person. But there's a couple problems with that point of view. The first is, quite simply, that not everyone is good. That's a fallacy. That's a lie. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God again. But even more, Paul says that, and quoting from the Psalms, by the way, in Romans 3.10, there's no one righteous, not a single person. Go back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. God looks at the earth, and he's thinking about Noah and what he's about to do through Noah, and he says, Every intention of the hearts of men is only evil all the time. That's that's not basically good people. The intentions of men's hearts are only evil all the time. This idea that people are basically good is an error that's more tied to philosophy and the Enlightenment than anything in Scripture. This idea that we can make ourselves better and make the world better around us. Just, just look at the world around us. How's that going for you? Yeah, we've advanced in technology, we've advanced in medicine, but morality, how's that going? How many millions of babies have we killed in the last few decades? How many, how many murders do we see on television day after day after day? How many killings around the world? How much sin is plastered before us in virtually every TV show that you watch and movie that you see? Fifty Shades of Grey was one of the most popular novels among Christian women. How's that theory, people are basically good? How's that working out for you? I would argue not very well. But the second thing about this is that sin is not inconsequential. We can't just ignore it. Sin matters, and sin has consequences. Again, Paul to the Romans writes in chapter 6, verse 23, these are all well-known verses, the wages of sin is death. And James writes in chapter 2, verse 10, if you've committed a violation of one part of the law, you've, you've violated the whole law. And we went through an exercise a few months ago on how that is true. Sin, sin brings death. The penalty that's the result of God's 
holy judgment of sin. So it doesn't matter how many good works you do, good deeds you do, good intentions you have, you cannot outweigh that divine pronouncement of judgment for sin. You sin, you die. And it goes back, as we saw in our reading from the Catechism this morning, it goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden itself. So God is not made happy, and his wrath is not turned away by our pathetic attempts to do good things to appease him. Again, frivolous expiations. People do do good things, but they're always tainted by our claims for how good they are and and our own selfish or prideful motives. You know, it's a little boy who sat in the corner, stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum. What a good boy am I. But we're not. We're not. Or again, the words of Jesus to the rich young ruler. Why do you call me good? Only God, only God is good. A third way to minimize sin is to admit that sin is real. Even to admit that sin is bad. But that for one reason or another, I don't care or it doesn't matter. And this is where you typically find your atheists and your agnostics. Most of them are quite honest about who they are. I am a sinner, so what? What are you going to do about it? God's going to punish me? No big deal, I'll just go to hell and have a party with my friends. It's a very cavalier, very callous attitude. They either deny God exists, or if he does exist, he can't hurt me. I'm going to have fun no matter where I go. This is where, though, in the church, we find these people who we call antinomians, those who deny God's law, anti-law, is where the word comes from. See, I'm saved, is their attitude. God's law doesn't matter. It can't get at me. It can't hurt me. God forgave me. He showed me grace. I have grace. I have forgiveness. Therefore, I can sin as much as I want. That is a surprisingly common attitude in the church today. And it's appalling. Paul anticipates that reaction when he teaches about grace. And ask the question in Romans 6.1 and, and the following verses. Shall we sin so that grace could abound more? No. No way. How abominable is that? How can those who have died to sin continue to live in it? Or look at the Colossians, our reading from the New Testament this morning. That was who you used to be. You've died to that. Now walk in the light, walk in obedience to God. Not to earn his favor because it's good and holy and right. And it reflects his goodness and holiness and rightness. Those who continue to sin and don't care about it, in the end show that they really don't understand what the grace of God is all about in Christ Jesus. Repentance and faith is always accompanied by the desire to walk in obedience and holiness with God. We're not perfect. We never will be. We'll fall short of perfection. Our brothers in in Europe, on the continent, in their confessions, talk about how even the 
the most mature Christian, only makes a small progress in this life on the way to holiness. But we do make progress with the help of God's Holy Spirit. So we need to remind our brothers and sisters of these truths, but what do we do with the agnostics, the atheists, those who act as if God's punishment is no big deal? Well, really, the the, the heart of the cure is the proclamation of the gospel, that their hearts would be changed by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, that they would come to know that their sin has consequences. And the only way to avoid those consequences is to accept the offer God makes in his son Jesus, and let Jesus take that punishment in their place through his death on the cross, accept his obedience as their own by grace and through faith, the very heart of the gospel. But that leads us to Calvin's second problem. People want to make up their own trivial, silly ways of turning away God's wrath, of dealing with sin. Instead of accepting the solution that God offers them in Jesus, they invent their own ways to get around sin or to make up for it. One is to try to outweigh our sin by good works, kind of a a balancing of the scales. If I do just enough good stuff, I can outweigh the bad. But as we saw, just one sin results in the judgment of death. Another attempt that many make is through, through some sort of religious ritual. Again, religious people are susceptible to this kind of denial of sin and, and ways to get around it. If I just pray hard enough, if I just have a good quiet time in my closet, if I just attend the right meetings, the right services, if I do the right things, if I kneel here, if I stand there, if I make the right offer of incense, if I pay enough in tithes and offerings. Whatever the ritual might be, God will be happy with those things. His wrath will be appeased. And I'll be right with God again. I mean, isn't this what the religions around the world do? Whether it's the, you know, the stereotypical and kind of comical taking the virgin to the volcano and dumping her in, or sacrificing an animal, or putting bread in a temple, or other gifts or other offerings, just to make the God somehow happy, and that he'll he'll leave me alone. That's really what those people are hoping for. Just leave me alone and let me be. It's just another form of works. Or more crassly, it's a way to buy heaven. What's that song? She's buying the stairway to heaven. She failed. Just another form of works. We can't outweigh the punishment. And here again is where the good news of the gospel needs to be spoken to these people. The sacrifice has been made. It's done once and for all when Jesus hung on the cross. Sometimes we forget, I think, that there on the cross, 2,000 years ago, on a hill outside the city, every single one of your sins was paid for before you had even been born or committed them. 
Every single one. That, to me, that's, that's mind-blowing. That's incredible. Every single one. It's not like I sin and then I confess and, okay, those are paid for. And then I wait another week and I sin and I confess. Okay, now those are paid for. No, in advance. It's been done. All you have to do is accept it in repentance and faith. Other religions look to these things in various themes, good works and prayer, pilgrimages, various rites and rituals. But again, the work's already been done. Hebrews tells us that. Paul tells us that over and over again. It's been done once for all. For all who will repent and put their faith in Christ Jesus. It's as simple as that. Receive the work of Jesus and rest upon that. There's a there's an connotation in the word faith that has that implication to it of a person being able to just kind of lean up on something and let that support them, hold them up. The resting upon Jesus and his work. How does Psalm 32 then present us with a solution to this as an answer? I'm not going to do a detailed exposition of the psalm because I did that six months ago. But what I want us to see is David's attitude as he comes before the Lord. And that David recognizes the truth of what we've been talking about. The truly blessed person, David sees this, as the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord does not count his iniquity. Your sins are not counted against you. They're covered in the righteousness of Christ. They're forgiven. That little phrase at the end of verse 2, in whose spirit there is no deceit or guile, it just means a person who's honest with himself. The person who's honest with himself or herself is not going to minimize sin. And is not going to invent ways to try and make up for it. Because they know that they can't. And so they look to the Lord and for his solution. David knows in verses 3 and 4 that if we admit our sin, if we are that honest person, it weighs on us. It weighs us down. It weighs heavily upon us. My bones, he says, wasted away. I groaned all day long. The Lord's hand was heavy upon him. His strength is dried up. The person who knows their sin has that feeling, this is bad. I cannot bear it. I need help. And so that's what David does in verse 5. He knows the experience of repentance and faith and what that does. God's merciful grace and forgiving sin. Again, immediately, I acknowledge my sin. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Again, immediate. No delay. No waiting around. No rituals. No purchase. No sacrifice. No work. I asked, and you did it. (laughs) David, a thousand years before Jesus, knows the grace of God in forgiving sin. He knows what John will write about. Again, another famous verse. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The rest of the psalm flows from these truths. David, in verses 6 and 7, teaches others. Let me teach others to to do what I have done. Let everyone who is godly come before you with prayer. You will protect them from the rush of rising floods. You'll be their hiding place. You'll preserve them. You'll surround them with deliverance. David wants other people to know that. And then we see God speaking in verses 8 and 9, who instructs us and teaches us and warns us not to be stubborn. Don't be a mule. What's as stubborn as a mule? It's the caricature in every movie. The mule that won't budge. (laughs) Don't be that mule. Be teachable. Learn and understand who you are through the grace of Jesus Christ. Those who deny sin in verse 10 or try to deal with it themselves, they're full of sorrow. But those who turn to God are surrounded by his love. And so we get to the end result in verse 11. Again, I think this psalm builds to praise and to worship of God. And this verse, I think, in in 11 is not all that different from Psalm 27, verse 4, if you think about it. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy, you who are upright in heart. In other words, find in God all of your joy and your delight. And if that's true, and it is true, then doesn't what David says in Psalm 27.4 make sense? That we'd want to pursue God, to see His beauty in everything around us, to study Him, to know Him, to know His ways, to know how to follow Him and live with Him. Ask that one thing of the Lord your God, and He will give it to you. Because He wants to give it to you. He wants you to have this joy. He wants you to have that delight and that peace in Him. Don't be your own worst enemy. Don't be a stubborn mule. Don't deny the reality of sin and its consequences. Don't try to deal with it yourself. You're wasting your time. Because you can't do it. But God did it for you. In his own son, Jesus Christ. So acknowledge your sin. Confess your transgressions to the Lord. He will forgive the iniquity of your sin. And pursue him. Every hour and every day. Let's pray. Our glorious God and Father in heaven, we do ask that you would teach us. (laughs) Help us not be blind or stupid or willful, uh, but rather to see the reality of our own sins, but also to, to have joy and comfort that you have already completely taken care of them from the beginning to the end. While we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. You made us alive in Christ. And you did this because you loved us with a great love. 
and because you are rich in mercy toward us. We don't deserve it, but boy, are we thankful for it. Help us and strengthen us by your word and by your spirit to live in that way that David requests. We make that the request of our own heart, our own heart's desire to worship you in all that we do, to live with you, to see your beauty in everything around us, and to know you and to know your ways. Help us in this great task. We ask in Jesus Christ's own name. Amen.